Continuing on with our sermon series through Timothy, um, we began this back in September, and the more I go through it, uh, the, the more just stuff we just pull out of uh, just what God is saying to us. And uh, as Tim said at the table this morning, the, the theme of the mystery of godliness. Um, I will do my best to try and explain it in the time that we have, uh, but it's got to be near an impossibility. But you'll be blessed and encouraged by the words uh, that Paul writes to Timothy under the inspiration of the Spirit in these few verses. Uh, Because in these verses, we really see Paul's purpose for writing this letter to Timothy. We said back in September, one of the things we wanted to do as a church is to take the Bible and work our way through some of the books and the themes uh, consistently, systematically, that, you know, it wasn't just, well, we'll do this this week and we'll talk about this next week and then we'll do this on the third week or or what happens sometimes with pastors and preachers. uh, You preach a sermon based on the week that you've had. So if I had a, a good week, then you're getting blessed and encouraged. But listen, if I have a bad week, then you're all getting told off for something. And so I just made that decision, uh, we made that decision just to say, let's work our way through uh, some of the books, the themes of uh, scripture uh, that we're doing, whether that be in the academy or whether that be the Bible studies uh, twice a month and certainly on a Sunday. And so in these verses that we're going to read in a second, we see Paul's purpose for writing this letter. We know in chapter 1, he'd encouraged Timothy to stay in Ephesus because he wanted to leave because it was difficult, it was challenging. But he gave him what he needed to do. He said, you've got to confront the false teachers, all these people preaching nonsense and all these people uh, trying to take over and all these people that think they can do it better. Confront them and tell them that you're wrong because you're God's chosen man. And in chapter 2, Paul writes to him and he says, he speaks to him about some of the organisation in the church of, of preaching the word and how you pray and who you're to pray for. And then we came on to uh, the roles within the church as we looked at what the men did and what the women did. And we continued that on in chapter 3, where we set forth the leadership pattern within the church. So it wasn't just a free for all, that everybody just throw in and we'll just do what we want and, you know, don't like the preach it what we're doing well why don't you come up here and do it and no we didn't do that it says because Paul tells Timothy not to do that he says this is a structure of the church and you've got to have the structure and so there's a leadership pattern as we looked at the elders of the church and and their tremendous responsibility and privilege of leading the church and as we come to the end of chapter three we really see in these three verses that we're going to read Uh, why they're vitally important because Paul challenges Timothy uh, to simply not only now to deal with uh, false teachers and some of the organisational issues and stuff, he gives him the reasons why he's got to do this and and we're going to look at this and break this down. So 1 Timothy 3 verse 14 to 16 says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Although, sorry, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. 
He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. You might wonder why I stopped there, because some big Egypt has parked a minibus right there for the sun to bounce off, and I've just realised I'm the big Egypt. <laughs> That's how the sun... I wonder if we could just close the blinds, maybe they're just... Uh, just out there, just in the foyer, just because the sun's just blinded me there. I was just about to tell somebody off then for parking the bus there when I realised it was me. <laughs> Paul challenges Timothy, these three verses, when he begins to speak about the conduct within the church, that there is a responsibility for the way that people are to behave. And for me to break that down, uh, conduct within the church has to do with what you believe affecting how you behave and where you belong. So the three B's make it nice and easy for us to remember and to understand because conduct within the church has to do with what you be- how you believe, how you behave and, and where you belong. And each of those in, is equal. Uh, so before the, the outset of this, we begin to sort of lay the foundation for what's being said here. And he talks about the conduct. And he says there is a responsibility upon the people who are part of the church, part of the family, and it's their conduct, it's the way that they behave. And you see, the way we behave is always taken from what we believe. We can't just say we've got our believing right, but forget about our behaviour and our belonging. We can neither do the same with our belonging. We can't turn around and say, well, as long as I belong to a church, that's okay. It doesn't really matter the way I behave or what I believe. Each of the three of them are important all together, and they all matter. Uh, And this is why here Paul is writing to Timothy, because he's telling them, he says, listen, uh, all of this matters, uh, how you conduct yourself in the house of God. It's Paul's purpose for writing to Timothy, simply to give him some practical information. Uh, right from the beginning, from the false teachers. This is how we pray. This is who we pray for. This is a leadership of the church. This is the ministry of the word. Ground the people in the foundation of the word. And he gives him all these things to help him to work through. Uh, this is the way people help. And he gives, really, Timothy two reasons in these verses why the conduct of the church is so important this is why this is so important this is why this matters this is why church matters the first one is this simply because of what the church is and we'll break that down in a second simply because of what the church is not just the building but the people the redeemed people of God the family of God the body of God that's what the church is that's the first reason the second reason is this It's because who the saviour of the church is. Now, God didn't just suddenly come up with a good idea one day to simply say that, you know, when all these people get saved and all these people suddenly worship me in my name, what am I going to do with them? Where am I going to put them? Oh, I tell you what, let's do church. Let's do a thing called church and bring everybody together and see how there's some direction. No, this is planned. There is always a long-term planning, an eternal planning in everything that God does. Uh, And so the two reasons here were because of of what the church is and because of who the saviour of the church is are the foundations for the conduct of the church. See, the definition of the word church comes uh, from a Greek word that simply means a called-out assembly. 
Uh, the word for church actually had its origins before Christianity because it actually means a people who gather together with the same purpose, which is really what we've done today. This is still the church, and that word existed before Christianity, in a sense, took the word and said, that's a good idea of what the, the church, what Jesus Christ is, is doing. That is simply getting a group of called out, because we are, called out believers who don't belong in the world, but belong here with the same purpose. And so today we can come, and regardless of our background experience, all that stuff that says we gather together, and we're the church. And the person that's sitting next to you is your sister in Christ. And your person the other side of you is your brother in Christ. And, and we're a family. And you might look at them and think, oh dear. <laughs> but that's, I didn't make it up. It says in the Bible. And so we look at that and see we're here as a called out assembly. See the church in the New Testament is a house of God, the body of Christ. A family, a temple, a building, a spiritual building. We've said so many times, you've heard this, the church not the building, but the group of people gather together with the same purpose. Uh, the church must be very consciously the place where God is. And I say that with, with the utmost respect, that actually just because people call themselves a church doesn't necessarily mean that's where the place that God is. It says it takes the Holy Spirit and the work of the people and the love of Christ to bring everybody together to do uh, what God has called us to do to make sure the most important thing about this church this house is that God is here yeah. is that we worship God and we preach God and we pray to God and everything is about that we can do all the other things which are helpful but they're not essential when it comes uh, to the priorities of what the church is about they say the church is God's house because simply he's the architect the builder he lives there he provides for it he's honored there and you see we live in a world where the church has really taken a back seat to the individual because you often hear people say, well, you don't need to be uh, a, you know, you don't need to go to church if you're a Christian and, you know, you can sort of do all this stuff at home. I've heard all these people say to me, we can just stay at home. You pray in your living room and you can watch a God channel and you can do all of that. And uh, without going into a lot of explanation there, I'll probably give it just one word, nonsense, you can't. That's probably my best description of it and I'll tell you why. Uh, because this is the bride of Christ. This is what Christ has died for, that this would happen. We live in, we, we may at times criticise the government and we may say at times that they're interfering and stuff. Listen, we have full religious freedom in this nation. Nobody stopped me driving to church this morning. Nobody is standing at the door telling me you can preach this, you can preach that, but you can't preach this. We have religious freedom. And it says we often take it for granted. We often, in a sense, almost think because we've got it, we don't respect it or sort of honour it enough because we're like, well, it'll always be there. It might not always be there. But we come and we look at it and say that actually that, that to be a Christian, you have to be part of the local church. You have to sort of establish yourself somewhere to provide the stability and the foundation for your Christian life. I know other people may disagree and say, but we can do this on the internet and we can meet in a coffee shop in the week or we can do these other things. Listen, that's okay, but I, I just believe this is so important 
This is essential for each and every one of us. It grounds us in truth. It gives us fellowship. It gives us encouragement. It gives us what we need for the coming week. It sustains our relationship with God as you get to know people who are struggling as you are, as you get to know people who will encourage you because you're part of the family. And essentially, that's why church is just some of the reasons why church is important because we said at the beginning of the series, you know, you've got people who church surf. They've become about finding a church that meets their needs in a sense. Well, let's just go and check out what sort of coffee do they serve. And I said all this, didn't I? Do they look after the kids? Is the pastor funny? Is the pastor not funny? Does the pastor preach too long? Is he too short? You know, and all these reasons are tick boxes sometimes for why people attend or come to church. Because we live in this world where that symptom of self-centeredness has almost come into church and sort of said, well, it's about what I can get from church. And actually, when Paul addresses Timothy here, when he writes these words, he said, this is not about the individual. It's about the church as a body. It's about us all together. That mixture of ages, that mixture of people from everywhere. Those people, and you could be coming to this church this morning, and you could be sitting next to the most intelligent person in the world. Or you could be sitting next to the person who's as thick as two short planks. Please don't look at anybody. (laughs) Don't look to the left or to the right. But you know what? We come together and we're equal. We come together and there is a place at the table for every single one of us. Regardless of your intellect, your education, how smart you are, what job you have, how much money you have. He says, you're welcome to come in and take a seat with the rest of us. You're fed up of hearing that. Such a good quote though, isn't it? Take a seat with the rest of us. Why is this important? Christ died for the church. The church corporately is the bride of Christ. And within that, We are called to serve one another, love one another and care for one another because all we do, because we love Jesus Christ who died for us, the bride of the church. And you see, have you thought about the impact of meaning and the cultural context that this was written in? Because as as Paul writes this to Timothy, we know he's writing to the church in Ephesus and to the Jewish population as they read this, This must have been mind-blowing because they have grown up under this Old Testament idea that God is in a tent, that God is in the tabernacle and only a few special people on occasion throughout the year can go in. And all the sacrifices and all the rituals and all the legalistic bits have got to be done. And it must have been a shock to them for a group of people that simply would have declared that remembering in the days of Jacob when he met God at Bethel that they could say surely this is the house of God surely the Lord is present in this place and later Moses gives a command for the tabernacle to be built in Exodus Uh, and, and you see the exact measurements of the materials and everything that has to be built so specific in everything that's been done The Jewish uh, congregation would have heard this and, and in a sense would have listened to what Paul was saying as he writes to Timothy. 
You know, they, they understood that the God of heaven, in a sense, was contained in a tent, though he wasn't, that he was contained in a tent that just a few select people could go in uh, and visit uh, an occasion. And so they hear this word and they hear about this man, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, the emphasis changes uh, because there's no longer this spiritual location. There's no longer going to this place and saying, surely the presence of the Lord is here. It's all changed because of Christ. Because the presence of the Lord is now in here. It's mind-boggling to them, if you think about it. Mind-boggling that before it was all the external. It was all the sacrifices. But now where the presence of God is, well, it's by the Holy Spirit in a person's life. There's no longer a tent somewhere, a building somewhere. There's no longer where people have to travel to discover the presence or the blessing of God. And there's no longer this, this beautiful sanctuary. And, you know, if something happened to this church, you know, today, that, that you know, next Sunday we would meet somewhere. If, God forbid, the church burned down in the next week, paying it doesn't now, that we would meet somewhere and we would still be the church if we had to put a big marquee up, if we had to have an open air on the second Sunday in November, so you think it was cold last night, you went to do the open air. He says we would still be the church because that's what had changed between the old and the new. That's what's happened here. The people are, are gathered. and In a sense, they're, they're thinking, well, where is the presence of God? Where, where is he? Well, he's in here now. He's in here. And, and those at times are people that will travel, in a sense, to go to a place where they might have labelled a blessing somewhere or an outpouring somewhere, a, a revival somewhere. You know, I always look at it and think to myself, that, that that's an experience you're chasing after. Because the presence of God and the power of the Spirit and everything that God is and everything that God has is contained now in here because of what his son has done for us when he ascended to heaven and left the spirit uh, and Paul's saying all of this because he wants them to understand that in the first three verses the first three chapters he's laid down some rules for how you do church the conduct of the church how you behave based on what you believe and where you belong but he's really saying actually all of that is important, but this is the reason why. It's because with the church, with the bride of Christ, and the saviour of the church is Jesus Christ. And as he moves on, he's trying to explain to them, and we'll come to this in the next few chapters, when he's saying, actually, this is where the presence of God is. This is God's house. It says it, Corinthians tells us that bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Said, and, and, and all of the stuff that goes into that, tries to help us to understand. Because the reality is sometimes we love the external stuff in church. No churches are split over the colour of the carpet. We would know churches and years gone by. If you brought a drum kit into church, you may as well move the devil in. And you're laughing, but you know it's happened. Or if you change something about church that people have said... We've always done it that way. Well, you haven't always done it that way because always doing it that way means it was written about in Genesis 1. It's not. 
And people say, well, we've always done it that way. And, that, and so many traditions and so many uh, legalistic things and so many things of the way things should be done have tripped up so many churches and ruined so many Christians because they focus on the minor things and not the major things. And Paul almost is saying to Timothy, yeah, this is the major things, there's two of them. The first one is, it's who the church is. It's Christ's. It belongs to him. It's why we sung to him, all hail King Jesus. It sort of puts everything else into perspective. He's above everything. And the second thing is the saviour of the church. So everything else becomes secondary. Everything else becomes, oh, it's helpful, but it's not essential. Paul is telling Timothy, this is what is essential. And he moves on because he talks about the foundation for the church. And this is where he gets him. He says, the foundation of the church is the gospel of Christ. And the church is to hold that up for all to see. Why are we here? To show the gospel of Christ. Whether we preach it, whether we live it, whether we show it, that's what we're here for. And, 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 and Paul is saying that. He says that you've actually got to maintain that true gospel, not a watered-down version of a false gospel, because there's just simply no salvation in that for uh, anyone if we get the gospel wrong. This is the church where God dwells with his people, not necessarily in the home of the person who said, well, we can do all this in the house. This is the church, the group of people that come together and worship in the presence of God together. You see, what does God say? He simply says this, it's a church whom he loves, and if you are part of the church, his love is manifested in you. You see, we have to understand it like this, and I'll break it down for you as simply as possible. There are two aspects of the Christian life, and it's relationship with God, but it's community with others. That's it. We break it down. It's relationship with God, but community with others. Our relationship this way is expressed in our worship and our prayer. And the other stuff that we do is spiritual. Listen, this way is a lot easier because you don't have to deal with people. It is, let's be honest. But this way, you've got to deal with people. And sometimes that can be difficult, can't it? Sometimes we all know difficult people, don't we? And you're thinking of somebody now. Some of you are even thinking of me. Like somebody once said, they will quote, as we come together, it says this, it says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> How true is that? But it's the aspect of the church. And Paul gives that description by its very nature that belongs to the living God. But why does he say this? Well, because people will worship so, so many dead gods. I mean, Ephesians, Ephesus, where the great temple to the goddess Diana was, and everybody was worshipping there, but it was a, she was a dead god that couldn't do anything for anybody. I mean, they sacrificed themselves in all sorts of disgusting ways, which I read into, but I can't share with you from the front of church because it'll put you off your dinner. But if you ask me at the door, I'll tell you. And all these different ways to a dead god. And yet Paul reminds the readers here in Timothy simply this, not God, living God. What do you mean living God? Well, he's alive. He's as, as alive today as he was at the moment. And I thought about this as Paul pens these words to Timothy under the inspiration of the Spirit. 
God was as alive then as he is now, here. That's what makes him a living God. He says, never sleeps, never slumbers, he's living. Uh, and so he moves on and he says, well, we, we, we have a living God, so therefore we have a living church. Uh, and so when we function properly, we see him clearly. And Paul goes on to explain to him about the pillar and the foundation. He says, a pillar and foundation of truth is what the church is built on. That truth is God's word. Now you would look at it and think again, he says, maybe there's something culturally here. As you write into the church in Ephesus, and the church in, in uh, the, sorry, the, in Ephesus, I had this huge temple to the goddess Diana. Said that 127 pillars holding up the roof of this temple. And these weren't short pillars, these were massive pillars. Most of them were donated by kings and queens from foreign lands. And that enabled them to, in a sense, be carved into the pillar. Uh, so this massive temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world held up this, this roof, it had to, because the bigger the building, the deeper the foundations. Uh, and so they would have had an understanding when Paul talks about the pillar and the foundation. They, they would have thought, well done, we look and say, there's a temple there. says there's hundreds of pillars and it's holding up that roof. And yet Paul's writing to this and saying... Well, this is like the gospel. Well, how's it like the gospel? And he says that, that it's not the gospel because of this, because the foundation is the truth that the church is built upon. And you see, if it doesn't get its foundation right, it'll collapse under the false teaching. It's why you can't allow the false teaching. It's why the first thing Paul says to Timothy, he says, stay in Ephesus, but we'll confront the false teachers. Because you don't deal with them first. If you don't deal with some of the nonsense that they not only are believing, but they're telling other people in the church, you'll never be able to build anything for God. So go and tell them, one, that they're wrong, and two, tell them to stop preaching. Nobody's listening. We're only preaching the true gospel. That's the foundation of the church. And how deep that goes. But then it's the pillars then. And the pillars come up. And it says, you see, pillars hold the roof so high that the truth can be seen visible and seen for miles to not be hidden from the world I was in London last week and you've heard of the Shard haven't you, it was uh, a big high building and it always looks like they messed the top of it up, it's like it's unfinished but they call it the Shard and it was lit up in London one night and you could see it for miles you could see it from wherever you were in, in London and uh, I'm I, got a photo with, with Athena, we're standing there, the shard was in the background and wasn't that I wanted a picture with my wife, I wanted a picture with the shard but I got the picture and you could see it for miles, it didn't matter where you were in that vicinity, you could see it and the same image and picture is here, that, that actually the, the temple that can be seen in Ephesus was a picture of what the church should be in a spiritual sense Pillars so high of the proclamation of the gospel built on the foundation of the truth which holds all that in place. The foundation's not right. It simply won't work. You see, to hold the truth firm is the defense of the, the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. And this is Paul saying, this is what we're doing. This is what church is about. He's, he's addressing the problems and the issues, but he's saying this is what church is about. 
He says, get the foundation, ground the people in truth. Don't just preach this this week and this this week and this the week after and stuff. Give people something that sustains them in the hard times. Give something to people that helps them with the word of God on a Monday morning when they've got the doctor's appointment who's about to tell them the results of the scan. And living out your destiny or living bigger is not a message that's going to help them. A message that's going to help them is simply the God is with them. The God will see them through the valleys that they are going through. That's the message we've got to be preaching. Not just, it's all about finding your way. It's all about your destiny in God and where God will lead you. Listen, it's not. He says we've got to hold the truth firm in its defence, but then proclaim it high. And we begin with the lives of the people in church. So what you have this week, you will get something from today that simply says, whether it be through the worship, the table, or the word, you'll get something when it all hail King Jesus. He's above everything you're going to face this week. There is nothing that is unexpected to him this week. Any test result, he said he's still in control. And, and it's those things that we have to hold on to. But I want to move on quickly because we, we come to the mystery. Uh, and this is the, 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 what, what Paul tries to explain. And we see the, the words here. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And the first thing he says, this is a great message for gospel preachers, including myself. Because Paul simply preaches the gospel in four lines there. He says, some of us should go on and on and on and on, and I'm including some of you. He says, we, we, we get it muffled sometimes. Paul writes here, says, this is Jesus. Six points just simply says, this is what he did. And we say, well, how do we get the mystery of this? Now, he doesn't mean a mystery like this, because we think mystery, and we think Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass out with Dr. Watson thinking, well, what's happened here? Not that sort of mystery. That's not the mystery that, that we're looking at here. He says the word when it's used in the New Testament, it refers to the things of God that were once hidden, but they're now revealed. Once hidden, but now revealed. You see, they're revealed through Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, a mystery is that which can only be known through the revelation of God. It's something that in times past had been hidden, but it's now revealed to God's people. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul uses the same word here, mystery, 21 times in his letters, because he understands that before he met God on the Damascus Road, it was all hidden to him. After he met God on the Damascus Road, he says it's suddenly all revealed to him. And it's why he writes of the mystery, something that was hidden, but something that is now revealed a declaration of spiritual truth revealed by God through divine inspiration uh, and it says this that this mystery here is this amazing revelation concerning our faith because what's Paul trying to say here he says this is a wonderful powerful description of the life of Jesus and Paul is not presenting it as information for us to take in but revelation that would change people's lives that they would read this and think that's who Jesus Christ is. That who was hidden before has now been revealed by God. 
And Paul understands that because that's exactly the journey that he's been on. That's the mystery of godliness to him. Before Paul thought he was right. He just thought he was on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians who were gathering in the church and God met him on the Damascus road. He says, why are you doing this? Oh, he did this in the second week of Paul's testimony. Paul suddenly receives, now get this right because this is our problem sometimes. He doesn't get information, he gets revelation. They're two totally different things. Informing you of something is not going to change your life revealing something to you will change your life because the revelation of God carries the power of the Holy Spirit through the inspiration of his word. Information is simply telling you, you know, there's 66 books in the Bible, Matthew, Malu, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, yeah, you know, though, and that's information. God does not want to give us information. He wants to give us revelation. Why? Because he knows the revelation that's written here changes people's lives. It's a mystery of godliness. So my time is nearly gone, but I'll go through them quickly. As Tim said at the table, he says, the incarnation. Alistair Begg, who I listen to a lot concerning this sermon series, he said, you know, if you were going to get the world to believe something, why not make it easier? You know, why not make it easier? Why not make it easier than saying, you know, that God became a man, was born of a woman, grew up for 30 years, went around preaching. But some of that's hard to take in as information, not as revelation, because the Spirit reveals to it. But he made that point, and I thought it's quite true, actually. Why not make it a little bit easier for us to grasp? Because incarnation, and somebody explained it like this, he said, Christ stood at the rim of the universe, dove headlong past a billion stars, through the Milky Way and into the womb of the Virgin Mary, where we grew until his birth on that cold winter's night. That's the incarnation, I hope you understand it. That's just one of the six points that, that Paul makes here. And in a sense, trying to explain them almost makes it harder for people to understand. Because it really just comes down to this. He says, God loved us so much. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins, all the things that we'd ever done wrong, because he loved us. And on that cross at Calvary, every sin that had ever been committed, will be committed, has been committed, the full works went on the cross with his son, Jesus Christ. He died, the story never finished there, because he rose again. And at that point, when he rose again, sin and death were defeated. This is, in a sense, the mystery of godliness. says, how do we sort of look at that and say, it's mind-blowing, in a sense. And you know what? We mustn't become complacent with it. We mustn't just sort of accept, well, we've heard it so many times, that actually... You know, it says, the God who created the universe sent his son to die for you and me as if it was only you and me. <gasps> Mind-blowing. How could we ever explain it? We can explain stuff, some things theologically, and that just dulls the mind. But we're better to explain some things and leave it as a mystery. It's information that's become revelation that God suddenly has declared and shown his people that each and every one of us and some of us will come from the darkest backgrounds ever have suffered huge hurt and, and massive problems in life and great difficulties and all sorts of trouble in life there will be some of us there and there will be others of us who are blessed to be born 
maybe in a Christian home, a stable home, whatever term you want to use, uh, and you've grown up and you've just all you've known is church and that. Yeah, God sent his son for each and every one of us. It's mind-boggling. It's why it's that mystery that actually has been revealed to us. Of all the hardships and all the difficulties we've had in life, the mystery of godliness is that God would send his son for you and for me. I mean, to sacrifice his own son. I mean, those of us who are parents, sacrificing our kids, in a sense, for the love of people of no interest in them, for the love of people who just were so far away from God. He says, it has to be a mystery. But it's a mystery that has been revealed to us. See, information won't change your situation. The revelation of truth will. Paul draws all this together in Timothy and says it's about revelation. It's about because he'd experienced it on his journey that Paul thought he knew everything. Clever, intelligent man thought these people were against what he believed. God met him on the Damascus Road, revealed himself to him. That revelation changed his life and he went and told everybody else about it. He says, what do we do today? So in our final song we come and we're going to sing the words and these are appropriate the worship team will just come and join us as they get ready to start the very modern song simply says in the mystery to reveal the kingdom coming to reconcile the lost to redeem the whole creation you did not despise the cross for even in your suffering you saw to the other side knowing this was our salvation Jesus, for our sake you died. Purpose of the church, it's his. The reason why we exist, because we worship him as the saviour of this church. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the words that we've read. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And Father, though we can fill our minds with information, Father, it's the revelation of your word and your spirit that we need more than ever. Father, we thank you for that mystery that has been revealed in part to us, that Jesus Christ came for me, for you, when we were so far away, when we were in darkness, when we were lost. He was the light, he found us, and the only thing that we can do is worship because we have not received the information of that, but the revelation of that, that has changed our lives to this day. And Father, we just come and we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.